This is the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace, and you're listening to a very special limited series of six episodes called the Conservation Roundtable, where we take a deep dive into conservation news from around the world. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Modern Huntsman. I am the conservation editor on that publication, and you can read more on www.modernhuntsman.com. And welcome, everybody, to episode two of this series of six, where I have the privilege of sitting down with Jess and Ford to bring you fascinating stories from around the world. Um, Jess Ford, give us our two-second intro for who you are, just in case people forgot from a week ago. Oh, I'm Jess Johnson. I'm the Government Affairs Director for the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, 2% board member and a co-founder of Artemis Sportswomen. Boom. Done. (laughs) Ford. I am I am Ford Van Fossen. <laughs> I am the content and conservation manager at First Light Performance Hunting Apparel, and and basically that means I handle our company's interactions with nonprofits, with our own outreach and advocacy op, uh, programs, and uh, with fundraising for nonprofits. Great, and I think since uh, Jess had to go first last week, Ford, let's start with you. What what story are you bringing to the table today? Well, we're talking well, we're talking different levels here. Uh, on on a, on the surface, we're talking wolf management in Idaho. Whoa, which I is talk about heavy, yeah, <laughs> dropping bombs proverbially um, <laughs> within our world, within our industry. But I'm okay talking about it because I I actually think that. In many regards, this isn't about wolves or what is most important uh, about this story is not actually how Idahoans manage their wolves, um, but what these changes represent. And and to step back, basically what's happened is the legislature of Idaho has put together um, legislation, as they do, um, that basically compels our Fish and Game Commission to manage wolves in a specific way. Um, what, what that actually enta- enta- uh, entails is extremely controversial. Um, it, it essentially, the, the sh- it's very quite complicated, but the short form is it would allow Idaho to remove up to 90% of its wolves. I saw the, I saw this on social like in the last two weeks. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I, very, I never had the time to like dig into because yeah. Jess and I did. I've done this before. It's like okay, here's the headlines that was that were created to grab everyone's attention, Absolutely. which is probably only well, I'm going to use their numbers. Probably only ninety percent of the truth of what's really happening underneath. So I'm intrigued to find out what's going on here, Ford. Very much so. Yeah. So. Um, essentially liberalizes hunting um, and trapping further, even though we already basically hunt wolves year round in Idaho in most places um, and trap them very heavily. Um, but, and, and again, that the content here, the, the substance is extremely controversial. However, really what I think is most significant is that we have the legislature of Idaho, we have 
people, uh, you know, elected to represent the citizens of Idaho, um, making decisions about how we manage our wildlife, right, directly, telling Fish and Game, the wildlife management professionals who we've been entrusted with, um, the public's trust or the public's wildlife, essentially. Um, and to jump in upon my own opinions here, I think that's extremely problematic. Um, and again, it's not really even necessarily about how we're managing wolves right now. It's about a precedent that's set where we are managing our wildlife by democratic means, right? Which sounds optimistic, uh, but I think is problematic and, and yeah, I mean, the flip side is, is, is when it goes the other way, like Colorado's ballot initiative. Exactly. Yes. And that was sort of the second article I tacked on was just a reference on what's gone on in, in Colorado, where we have a ballot initiative that has been narrowly passed, um, compelling uh, CPW. Um, I believe that's the correct acronym, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, I think. Yep. Yep. Um, to reintroduce wolves uh, amidst, you know, certainly controversy, but also amidst uh, a wolf pack, a documented wolf pack reestablishing or, or establishing itself in the northwestern part of the state. Um, uh, so yeah. Yeah. you wouldn't have believed the uproar in Wyoming <laughs> ag and Wyoming hunters when that passed and how well, we're going to be dealing with Colorado wolves coming to Wyoming because nobody wants to be in Colorado anyways, including wolves. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was the, 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 yeah, it was a very interesting, I mean, it's both sides and it's interesting to be in Wyoming in between these two states. One that's, you know, Idaho and Montana and Colorado have had some major moves in the last like two years politically uh, around wolves and 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 I think in more to Ford's point around who's making these professional wildlife decisions and what I can tell you is not the professionals that are making them which is a problem and and I'm fully on Ford's same page with having an issue with it um, not that Wyoming's done much better we have a really interesting wolf management scenario here anyways so <laughs> it's I mean it's a really important point to raise and I mean we deal with this all the time we like to think that decisions around wildlife management uh, can and should be made just based on science which and by science i mean with the best information at hand we are trying to work out what the truth is it's it's truth searching for the facts to try and understand what is the best the best management for this area but you cannot disentangle uh, wildlife management from people and so Social there is politics, always going yeah. to be, yeah, there is always going to be politics involved. There was always going to be a, a sort of a social ecology related to conservation. And to think that we can't, uh, to think that we can just deal with one and, and not the other is so naive because we've seen it happen time and time again. And so we have to understand that any conservation management decisions need to consider the views and opinions and emotions of people because as you pointed out that can often actually drive management decisions beyond 
what necessarily the science suggests should be the management decision. Oh yeah, I, mean, actually, I think I, there's a balance that needs to be struck, and and you know we faced this with feed grounds, elk feed grounds this year in Wyoming, where our legislature removed the authority of the game and fish to manage feed grounds or close them as is needed, and handed it to the governor. Uh, so rather than our our game and fish commission. Um, which is informed by obviously our wildlife professionals. Um, it's it's put in the governor's hand. The one thing I will say, and, and maybe I've wrestled a lot with like how I felt about all of this, is that th- the thing is, is that we rather than working on the process, uh, the public process that all game and fish state, you know, in the states, all game and fish agencies. So you know, in America, wildlife is owned by the states. So each state's wildlife agency is the one sort of dealing with management plans, uh, obviously aside from the fact of like federally listed things like grizzly bears and and whatnot. But, uh, you know, looking at state wildlife management plans and how those are set rather than focusing on the public engagement and the education of people to engage in the processes that already exist that have ample public comment and ample outreach to more stakeholders than just hunters and anglers. Like agriculture has always, always, always been at the table um, in, in Wyoming and in many other states when these wildlife decisions are made. So rather than like focusing on the public process that many of our state agencies have gone through, we're just wrestling all of the authority to deal with this away from them, telling them to do something that may or may not be aligned with science and putting it in the hands of like people that are susceptible to political swings in administration or other things like that. And so it's, it's taking a process that could be very uh, equitable and, and could be better, always could be better, but we're throwing this process totally out the window and just putting it, sort of shackling it to this pendulum swing of administration change and, you know, public sentiment, which as we know is, uh, can be incendiary. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that, I mean, not to harp back down to the specifics in Idaho, but basically this bill was introduced, passed, and and placed on the governor's desk in about a week. So if you, you know, when it comes to feedback, um, that was non-existent, right? I mean, this was just fact fast-tracked, which is, you know, not really related to this greater theme of, legislative management of wildlife but was extremely problematic in my view oh yeah it's when it's greased you know there's it's it would take a really well organized concerted effort to stop it and uh i you know i work for hunting organizations and i can tell you i've yet to see one that can stop a piece of legislation moving that fast absolutely yeah i mean we were all sort of blindsided i think um sort of what 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 and by the time we had figured out what was going on it had passed the senate and the house yeah it's a it's a dangerous precedent i mean what it is i mean what are the longer term implications here what could what could be the uh, the roll-on effect of this absolutely well and i think the an irony here is perhaps that you know, in Idaho, for example, I think the same folks that are advocating for an extremely aggressive wolf management policy um, would be rather upset if in 20 years, um, an, an additional million folks have moved here from California, which is probably not 
out of the realm of possibility. Not out of the realm, no. No, no. And and those people don't like bear hunting. And they introduced a ballot initiative that eliminates bear hunting in Idaho. I, I just tend to think the same people that just fast track this wolf management legislation would be rather upset by the same policy being pushed through from a different side of the world. Yeah, everybody yeah. hates hates the bureaucracy of democracy uh, <laughs> until it works for them and slows it down enough for all voices to be heard. It's the same thing with, I mean, you can broaden that out into like multiple use of like how we manage our our public lands, you know, everybody's got a problem with it until, uh, until it's, it's a decision is made that they don't like. And then all of a sudden they have ample time to, to weigh in on. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's dangerous. And that, and really that, that actually isn't theoretical. It, it's theoretical in the sense of Idaho, but other States nearby, for example, Washington, um, have banned bear hunting with hounds in recent memory. Basically, um, due to gut reactions to a couple exposés of the practice. Um, and so it, it is certainly dangerous ground we tread here in Idaho, I think, with this move recently. And that's not to say, of course, this is novel or has never happened in the state or the West before, but it's not well, an encouraging we're... trend. It's happening yeah, I mean, more and more, is, is what is. my gut Around says. Around the world. Yeah. Yep. yeah, around the world. I mean, we, we saw it with... Uh... The bear hunting ban in BC a couple of years ago as well. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, where, where they polled like nine hundred people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Jess, I was going to pull up your story um, to like intro for you to talk about, and weirdly, I click on it and it says unavailable due to legal reasons. Uh, <laughs> we are recognizing that you are attempting to access this website from a country belonging to the European Economic Area. Uh, we're not. I'm not anymore because I'm in the UK, <laughs> so we're not in Europe, um, <laughs> including the EU, which enforces general data protection regulations. So uh, I have no idea what you're about to talk about, but go for it. <laughs> oh, I like I always, it. F- started I like off having... with a false GDPR warning. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I always have an air of mystery. Uh, this one is is one I. I I've been hearing and seeing a lot, especially because it's relatively recent, but I picked this article specifically uh, because of the tone of it. Um, and it's called, it's it, the, the tagline is this uh, uh, representative Simpson calls on his challengers to provide alternatives. So the background here is that a uh, Idaho uh, congressman has put together a package that is, I think it's like a $33 billion package that is calling for all of the dams to be breached and for huge investments to be made to replace lost hydropower generation, shore up the financially challenged Bonneville Power Administration, help farmers get their grains to overseas market via trains instead of the barges that they usually do, and then to aid communities um, in adjusting to life without slack water. So, so the push behind this is is the Snake River salmon and steelhead, uh, and and the just epically massive decline that we've seen, and these removal of these dams, um, you know, is is been presented as a way to uh, help bring this population back. And you know, uh, I picked okay. this one because I think this is you know Ford's likely been hearing a lot about this, and I was curious what he had to say around it as well. Oh yeah, you're just we're hitting all of the most controversial topics in Idaho. <laughs> That's amazing, and Fish what and a perfect tie-in. Perfect timing because I'm also going to be talking about salmon, yeah. <laughs> which is why, which is why I picked this story. So yeah. I thought this was really is interesting. This, oh, 
Go Have you it. guys seen Damnation? I haven't seen it, but this is reminding mm-hmm. me what you're telling me now. Uh, that was about removal. That was a Patagonia film, was it? Yes. Yep. 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 And that really yep. was catag- basically was was talking about the same dynamic that Jess is referring to right now. Yeah. Mm. So it's, well, the thing that I thought and the reason I picked this instance is because obviously, clearly, this is incredibly controversial, especially going up against power plant, like hydropower plants and, and agriculture and wrestling with like, you know, all of the infrastructure that we've built and then pulling that out and having to find, you know, how we make this better while also having, you know, salmon and steelhead in our lives, uh, which is an equally large and huge not just conservation provider, but economic provider uh, when you look at it and whether it's the fishing um, or in guide trips and tourism and everything that's around that. The thing that I found interesting is that his pushback to this when he is, he is working with people that disagree with him is not so much that they are wrong, but that they need to provide an alternative because we're at a standing point where salmon and steelhead, they need help. And they are still declining. We have not figured out like what else to do except for this. Um, and so he's going, well, if it's not this, what else can we do? What so rather it? than just yeah. opposing something, oppose it, but bring a solution. And I thought that that was a really, really great. Uh, it's a great message. Of, yeah, it's a great message. It's a great narrative. Um, it's something that we don't often see in politics, especially in America right now, is is, is we, we initially just go and like immediate pushback, like, no, we can't do that. Rather than being like, we can't do that here, but maybe we can do this here. And it's, you know, the art of compromise, the art of the alternative and things like that. So I was really been interested in following um, all of this story around this. It's a, it is a massive thing to try and conceptualize breaching these dams. Yeah. Huge. huge. Not just huge in like project wise, but huge in money. Like politically. Yeah. Politically huge in changing economics. Like, you know, it's a major, major super thing. But the fact that we're having these discussions and that we have people that are willing to at least bring this discussion to the table, whether it's feasible or not, I think is hopeful um, and that we're having dialogue around it rather than just like blatant, absolutely not. Yeah, it's it's strange because you know where you you look at a place like North America where the, the dam debate, and we we're here we're seeing it in Europe as well. You know, looking at the damage that building a lot of these dams has done to the to the pathways, particularly of migratory fish, but it's not just that. It's about how that affects flow downstream, how that af- uh, affects the transportation of sedimentation downstream, and what are the roll-on impacts of that. Some for farming, um, uh, like historic farming, some for just how it fertilizes these natural landscapes. And yet, on the other hand, you look at places like China, which are building like a crazy number of dams every year, and we look at the the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which I think is going to be the biggest, let me look it up. I think it's going to be the biggest dam in Africa. It's going to be 1,800 meters long and 155 meters high. Um, And that is massively controversial because obviously it's being put in to supply water for people and to supply water for for agriculture and, and, and drinking water. But the downstream impact of that is going to be huge. And actually, it, it's going to be huge politically as well because of how it changes this flow pattern of water. And I think it's fascinating to think about how we could be undoing some of this. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's also those... interesting to 
Sorry, Karen, Jess. I was just saying it's one of those things where it, it feels like some of the discussion, and, and, and I don't know if, if, that I've necessarily heard it portrayed as this, but when I look at it, it's like this is getting ahead of the ball rather than being behind it, by the, you know, rather than being like, crap, they're extinct. <laughs> like being like, oh boy, how do we, how do we save ourselves you before, know, we, before get we get yeah. too far? And, and maybe this is the right answer. Maybe it's not. I, I do think, um, one, it's uh, really interesting that it is a Republican um, who is introducing this, not a Democrat. Um, and it's not often you see that sort of dichotomy in our politics here. I thought that was really great. Um, but it's it's been interesting. The level of pushback has been massive. So it's it's been a dialogue that's probably been needing to happen, but it'll be interesting where it finally lands. What do you oh, reckon, yeah. Ford? Do you think this is going to be something that we see like increasingly rolled out or a discussion that we see increasingly happen around the world where, where dams have really negatively affected um, our you know biodiversity and the ability for species to survive i wonder though just as you're thinking about answering that you clearly these dams were built for a reason and normally they were built because we needed them for development so how does that water source get replaced <laughs> or the power for that matter at a time when we're trying to get renewables up and running i mean hydro is probably one of the oldest renewables we've ever used yeah and, and results in the northwest you know being fairly um, light, right, in the carbon pollution department because we do have so much hydropower. Um, but those are, those are, I mean, basically Simpson's, I think, answer would be, if I may go out on a limb, would be that's what the 35 to $40 billion he wants yeah. <laughs> is for, right, is, is um, essentially replacing that power um, replacing, I think actually in this case, more importantly, that transportation infrastructure, right? Um, oddly enough, Lewiston, Idaho is a seaport, if that makes sense, um, <laughs> because of these dams, um, because yeah. of, because of all the dams, but the dams in question are the, are the, what's called the lower four dams on the, on the, uh, basically the upper reaches of the Columbia river. Um, and Ice Harbor, Lower Monumental, Little Goose, mm -hmm. and Lower Granite dams. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of what they do is allow farmers in that region, um, in Idaho, in Oregon, et cetera, to move grain crops efficiently up and down that river system. Oh, um, fascinating. Wow. So it's a transport a, route as well as a water provision. Yeah. Oh, big time. Yeah. That's, and then I think that would. I think, I don't know this, but I, I think experts or those closer to this uh, would say that, that is a, a bigger factor even than the power generation in this circumstance. Yeah, and this That's article makes a big point about helping farmers get their grains to overseas markets. He he off, offers trains and infrastructure on that sort yep. of sense instead of barges. Um, it's just interesting because, you, you know, you're removing this hydropower and, and you know, if we're figuring out other transportation, you know, you also have to think about other impacts to wildlife. And I don't know the areas as well, but, you know, when you introduce trains and roads and trucking, you know, you up yeah, they wildlife, have an impact too. wildlife collisions and fragmentation of habitat. So yeah. it's really one of those things of like balancing, like the balancing act that we're charged with, with figuring out how to make this work. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It makes me think of, uh, we have, and I was just there the other day. In fact, I'm going to 
something uh, part of a project on the Loch Ness system. I'm going to talk about for my story. But the, the we have a Caledonian. It's called the Caledonian Canal. It's a canal that cuts the east coast to the west coast of Scotland from Loch Ness, sort of diagonally down across the country, uh, like along the Highland Fault. And that canal, it seems, is one of the biggest reasons for losses of uh, young salmon trying to go to sea. In fact, I was speaking to the head biologist of the system just last week, and he was saying that because the river system and the waterways were never connected to the West until man intervened, what happens is as the smolts are going down the river, some of them go to the wrong coast. Whereas they should be going down the rivers and heading out to the east coast, some of them are going along the canal and then going west. And then the other problem is when they're in the canal, this is a really slow body of water, so they're just completely open to predation, whereas normally they'd be in fairly fast-flowing rivers being carried at this this time of year. We're getting pretty much to the end of the smolt run now um, and, and out to sea you know, pretty quickly within the space of a couple of weeks. But in the canal, they're under their own steam, whereas normally they would just basically let the current take them out to sea and they just get all picked off and they're losing. And it seems like almost entirely because of the canal, they're losing 91% of all of their salmon smolts before they even hit the ocean. And a lot of that has to do with the canal. And then to your point about transportation, how do you fix that problem? They're they're never going to close the Caledonian Canal. It's the only thing that connects the east to the west. In terms yep. of waterways, otherwise, otherwise, what do you do? You, I mean, there's no road that. Well, there is a road that does it, but it kind of sucks. And otherwise, you take a boat. I don't know, all the way around the north of Scotland. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty tough, and you know, it, you it's there's no easy answer if you're a grain farmer in this circumstance in eastern Washington, eastern Oregon, or western Idaho. It's it's not attractive, you know. <laughs> it's it's not attractive at all. I see it both ways, but I I do. I think Simpson has been eloquent about sort of the argument um, for dam removal. And to paraphrase it, you know, it goes something along the lines of: Do we know that removing these dams will remove? You know, will will bring the salmon back? And, and his answer question. is frankly. No, we're not 100% sure this will fix the problem, but are we comfortable with our grandchildren asking, why do we call this the Salmon River? <laughs> it's a great point. And, and what we do know is that the current status quo doesn't work, not for yeah. species survival. That we, that we know for a fact. Exactly. Um, and I think, I think his, his, his branding around this plan has been effective that way. It's sort of, well, we don't know this. We do know this. We, we know it's know not working. We know everything we've done. We know the billions of dollars we've spent in the Pacific Northwest to bring back Columbia's, the Columbia salmon hasn't worked. Um, and, and to not try this is to, I think, in his view at least, accept the extinction of salmon in the upper reaches of the Colombian and the snake specifically. I really like well, that this has been raising that conversation to a national level here in the sense of like being like, you know, it's it's setting a dialogue using the example of the salmon, but also setting this up for like a a bigger 
platform to start talking about how we handle conservation and, and do we handle it in a way that's like very knee jerk and reactionary after it's too late to really do much and we have to struggle a lot and try and bring them back and put them on endangered species list or do we handle it in ways that are like with forethought and you know ahead of the ball and, and you know, looking yeah. at the like the sage grouse story is the same thing is it's yet to be listed because of a herculean effort of work to keep them off the list is, off. you know i yeah. think this is a similar thinking and saying like you know <laughs> Why don't it's cheaper, frankly, the economic argument is it's cheaper to fix the problem before it's a extinction problem. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, and in talking about human intervention, it kind of it leads me into my story, which is like I said, also about salmon. In the there was a study published in let me get the journal right. Um Proceedings of the Royal Society of Biological Sciences that was looking at the well, the, the title of the paper is um, A Century of Genetic Homogenization in Baltic Salmon, Evidence from Archival DNA. And basically what they did was they had these 13 rivers in Sweden that they had scale samples from, from rivers, and they uh, from the 1920s. And they looked at the genetic differences of salmon populations between these 13 rivers. And then they looked at them much more recently. And they found that there is more similarities between the populations of their of these thirteen rivers today than there actually are differences. And the reason for that is because, and I know that this has been a problem. In fact, it was a subject of the another Patagonia film called Artificial, which, which looked at this uh, rearing of salmon. And I'm not even talking about fish farms, and I'll tackle that in a second. But the rearing of salmon and stocking of our rivers artificially to keep salmon stocks high. And by having this, this human intervention in, in stocking the rivers, we've messed with the natural flow of genetic selection. And as a result of that, we've got this homogenization of populations between rivers. And you, know, you can ask yourself the question, well, you know, kind of what's the problem with that? Well, there's two major problems. One is the science has proven that they are genetically inferior. They are oh, not yeah. able to withstand the same kind of spectrum of stresses that the the normal um, natural selection would facilitate. In and wild, secondly, yeah. as we're looking at things like pollution and particularly climate change, this... Um, greater divergence in genetics between populations is what gives us the greatest possibility for adaptions to occur to these environmental changes. So if you've got a population which is all very genetically similar, they might succumb to the same problem. For example, there's um, the bacteria that has been, uh, and I can't remember the pathogen's name, that kills a lot of amphibians uh, that was, I think, imported from Asia, uh, killed a lot of amphibians in South America. Um, they have found that some of the species that have survived, it's, I mean, the death rate is insane. I think it kills something crazy like 98%. CB is what it's um, shortened to. Um, citrid fungus, that's it. Uh, some of the species, some small proportions of the species population survive and it's just because of very minor genetic differences and so we've got this situation where we've we've created uh, 
genetically inferior species and each river is now basically the same population. And we see this also played out with fish farms where you have massive escapes from fish farms here around the coast of, of Scotland. The salmon that are in fish farms are not native to our rivers here in Scotland. Most of the breed stock from salmon farms comes from larger, faster growing fish found in Scandinavian rivers. And so here and over in Ireland, we have this influx of escaped salmon farm uh, fish running into our rivers and breeding with our, our native fish. This seems and like such a aha moment in the sense of like, we, we do this over and over and over again in humanity and in science. <laughs> well, thinking we're doing a good thing. And yeah, with... by being like, oh yeah, we'll fix this by doing this and here's the easiest way to do it and we just do it this way rather than like- Has it you know, ever it, worked? Yeah, like, I'm thinking I, like I'm thinking like cane toads in America. Or mongoose in Hawaii. Yes. <laughs> like, like, oh, let's just do this, and you're like, oh wow, nature is way more complex, and you know, meanwhile, smarter we than we are. Call ourselves scientists and stewards and managers, and meanwhile, we don't. We're clueless. <laughs> we're screw, we're screwing it up, is what mm -hmm. we end up doing very often. But it, it's it's we it's it's like it's the un seen attack on the survival of species around the world is genetic diversity. Oh yeah. And this is this is just one example in salmon where we have really had a hand in in creating this problem. But we see the same thing every to your point Jess like you were talking about earlier trying to solve a problem before it's like on the brink of being too late. Because if you let these populations go down to very small numbers, like we saw, like we were talking about with, with bison last week, you can end up with these genetic bottlenecks, which you can never really fix. And they become far more vulnerable to environmental change. Yeah. If, the if, black if we don't ferret tackles. comes to mind that way right now. Exactly. In terms yeah. of I mean, recent news to the point where we are trying to resurrect one, what well, we have, I suppose, one, one single ferret. <laughs> Because yep. we, I believe, wasn't basically didn't we have the carcass in a freezer essentially, and, yeah, and she had never reproduced successfully, and so they went we to did. to the length of cloning her specifically wow. to introduce just one more piece genetic. of new genetic information into this tiny, tiny population. What's her name? I'm trying I, to remember. I'm googling it right now. Is it Elizabeth? <laughs> It went around my Elizabeth friend group. The black-footed ferret. <laughs> I love it. Oh, it's something. Uh, it is something rather human. I feel. Yeah. Like. Um, but it, it but is yeah. like it, it's, it's just pretty that wild thing of making it like uh, you know we're consistently learning and that's great and you know science and studies and everything that's coming out of it but i keep going back to this thought of like we're so arrogant to think that we can manipulate all of this and it's all going to be fine rather than like taking some like lessons whether it's from indigenous folk or it's lessons from whoever you know looking at the landscape and letting it tell us a little better what it needs rather than us you know, mandating what is needed there. Yeah. I just, uh, Elizabeth no, you're so Ann, right, Jess. by the way, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Ann. Ann. Okay. So that is a hundred percent why it is Elizabeth, because both who, who but she Jess was knows cloned. both of these humans. 
Yeah, she was yeah. cloned from the tissue of a ferret named Willa. Right. And so my fiance's name is Elizabeth Ann. And <laughs> my best friend, Annie, also, her name is Ann Elizabeth. And that is why it <laughs> circulated amongst our friends. <laughs> Got it. In, in retrospect, that's why that's all coming back together. <laughs> but, well, um, I will, yeah. I will, <laughs> I will end this uh, as a reinforcement of your point, Jess, by reading a quote from the article that I actually pulled this story from. Oh, well, it was the article like based on the original paper, and it was a quote from Carlos Gracia, Garcia, sorry, uh, who's the director for the Center for Sustainable Aquatic Research at Swansea, Swansea University here in the UK, um, and he said that it is another nail in the coffin of stocking. And he, he refers to the techno-arrogance approach to salmon conservation, one that simply addresses the symptoms, fewer fish, and not the causes, which is less water, less habitat, more fragmented rivers, simply by releasing more fish into the system. <clears throat> and we, we have this debate here all the time, and I'm going to keep this very brief because this could be an entire podcast, about introducing hatcheries into our rivers. And there's a very simple way to understand this. The biologists on the rivers who are doing surveys know what the stocking densities of young juvenile fish are. Like, what is the carrying capacity? Everything pretty much has a carrying capacity. What is the carrying capacity of our rivers? And we, we have a fairly good handle on this through electrofishing. And we know in many instances, our rivers, despite declining populations of salmon running into the rivers from the ocean, they're still able to populate the rivers to a point where they're pretty much at maximum carrying capacity for juvenile fish. The problem is that we're losing all of these fish at some point between them making their way down the river and then getting out to the ocean before they can come back. That is what has changed. So if you put a hatchery on a river and you put more juvenile fish into it, what are you really achieving? There's only a set um, density that that river can sustain. So you're either providing food for other predators or you're creating more competition and or, as this article proves, just reducing the um, uh, resilience of the genetic pool. So we really have to be careful. Oh, um, and, with, so... and, with, and with that doom and gloom, yeah. <laughs> um, we've got a sound. We've got a sound and to end this show with. And I'm going to pull up a sound for you guys. So are you ready? As ready as we'll be. So it's not the loud bird, it's like the croaky sound. It's the knocking sound? Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, it's not the stuff that's obviously bird sound. Is it amphibian? No. The knocking sound. No guesses. I'm, I'm, oh. I'm like thinking, is it a bird? Let me put it this way, right? Yes, it is a bird. And you have a kind of an equally charismatic bird in the US. Mm. Uh, it looks very different, but I, think, I would say I think equally I have charismatic. A guess. I feel okay. good about a guess. Go for it, Ford. Capricaley. Well done. Yes. Oh, that was you good. You got it. <laughs> You got it. Cool. Well, uh, once again, it's been a pleasure, guys. 
Yeah. Until next time. Oh, it's been lovely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>